This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello and welcome to the Intelligence Squared podcast with me, Farah Jassat. This week we ask, how is technology warping society? We've asked Tristan Harris, a former design ethicist at Google, to speak to Helen Lewis from the New Statesman magazine. Daniel is the producer of this week's podcast, This topic has really been in the air at the moment. Tell me about how you got this idea. Well, I should say we've really wanted to have Tristan on the show for a very, very long time, and we haven't been able to until now. We actually caught him while he was over in the UK um, on a kind of tour, speaking to policymakers about how technology needs to be reformed. And he really is kind of one of the most wise and sage voices coming out of Silicon Valley at the moment. Actually, immediately after this recording, he had to shoot off to a meeting at 10 Downing Street, presumably to meet with one of the prime minister's team. It's a really fascinating conversation, and I hope the listeners enjoy. I'm sure they will. Well, let's go straight to the discussion now. And if you want any more information about our podcasts or our live debates, you can join our mailing list at intelligencesquared.com or just follow us on Twitter at intelligence2. Hello, I'm Helen Lewis, Associate Editor of the New Statesman, and welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast. I'm here with Tristan Harris, the former Google design ethicist who is described as the closest thing Silicon Valley has to a conscience by The Atlantic magazine. He is now Executive Director of the Centre for Humane Technology. OK, first of all, let's start at the beginning. What is What does a design ethicist do? <laughs> um, well, I was interested in how do you ethically design the attention of two billion people? when they look at their phones, Um, whether it's a news feed or notifications or the way that technology just interacts with your nervous system. If you're going to impact 2 billion people, how do you do that ethically? And can you question whether or not the basic existence of smartphones in people's pockets is actually a good thing for the world at all? Um, So I was really interested in those questions specifically because I had a background in persuasion and how people are invisibly persuaded uh, by things that they don't see. I was a magician as a kid and uh, later studied the way that technology is designed to persuade people. And so that's how we got into this conversation. I thought the thing about you being a magician as a kid is really interesting because you write about the idea, you know, when a a magician asks you to pick a card, they have many ways of making sure that it is the seven of diamonds or whatever that ends up in your hand. And you wrote a very great Medium blog post about the same thing about controlling the menu. You know, if you control the menu, then you control the options. You control really the the whole frame of a conversation, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think um, as a magician, your job is to create the illusion of freedom, that you are making a free choice. You know, did you pick whether it was a red card or a black card? Yes. Did you pick whether it's a face card or a number card? Yes. Did you pick? I didn't influence your choices in any way, did I? No, you did not. Great. How do I know your card is the seven of diamonds? 
because I did influence you. If you control and stack the deck in your favor, you can still create the illusion of making a free choice while someone upstream by controlling the menu controls what you do. So on Facebook newsfeed, you might think, well, hey, look, I chose my friends. So therefore, I chose the th- and I chose the things I clicked on and I chose the thing I liked. Therefore, isn't Facebook just a neutral tool? It's not like it's steering me towards choices it wants me to make. And it's very convincing. But in fact, um, Facebook is calculating of the thousands of people who you're connected to and the thousands of things that they've posted, what is the perfect sequence of things I can show you that's going to keep you engaged? And so even though you're picking from that menu and you're scrolling through it, um, someone else was deciding the menu for you beforehand. So in the case of Facebook, uh, one of the things that I read was that, you know, if you have a post that has kind of congratulations or happy birthday or engaged or, you know, something like that, something that is a signal to the network that this is a significant life event that's happened, then it will surface it much more in people's news feeds, right? Yeah, that's a good example. Um, Facebook knows that those kinds of events are very persuasive and engaging. And so it tends to put those at the top. And you could say, well, what's the harm in that? Because they're just telling you about some of the most important events in other people's lives. Maybe there's no harm in there. But, um, you know, other things that are really, really engaging that go to the very top of news feeds are, you know, the Pope endorses Donald Trump. It's highly engaging. It's got all the likes and shares in the world. Maybe that's the most, you know, the top of the menu. Unfortunately, total bollocks, as it turned out, right? Yeah. And the challenge here and what we're really on about with our work uh, and why we're here in London is to awaken both policymakers and technology leaders that there's a systemic bias in technology that tilts the ant colony of humanity. It tilts the whole playing field towards things that are the most divisive, the most false, the most outrageous uh, in this race to the bottom to get attention. Um, A good example, by the way, of this is YouTube. So if you airdrop a human animal and they land on one YouTube video, uh, let's say it's a teenager who lands on a dieting video. Okay, so given she's landed on this dieting video, now imagine a spectrum. YouTube can either steer you towards... I don't know, a bunch of calm, truthful news videos or outrageous, extreme, you know, more sensationalized mm. YouTube videos. From that point, if I'm trying to keep you as long as possible, it's YouTube's business model, which direction am I going to steer you? And it's always going to steer you towards the most extreme stuff. So the teenager with the diet video, the first autoplay recommendation on YouTube is for anorexia videos. If you airdrop a human animal on a 9-11 news video, so she, this person watches a regular 9-11, September 11th news video, um, the autoplay shows 9-11 conspiracy theories because those are the most engaging things they're going to keep you here the longest. If you airdrop a human being and they, they watch a, um, uh, what's a good example, a, a moon landing video, the next video is UFOs and moon landing conspiracies and the, NASA, the moon landing never happened. And so you may say, well, I'm going to be less addicted to my phone and turn my phone grayscale or turn off notifications. The, the internet is steering people towards conspiracy theories at a scale that is unheard of. 1.9 billion people use YouTube. That's about the number of followers of Islam that are jacked into to a system in which 70% of what people watch on YouTube, 70% is calculated by a machine. Meaning of the 60 minutes people spend per day on YouTube, 70% of what people watch is determined by what YouTube is recommending, just like the magician. It's recommending a menu, those right-hand sidebar of thumbnails. It's putting certain choices on the menu and it's not putting other choices on the menu. And the, 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 point, the choices it puts on the menu are the ones that are most likely to keep you here. And they tend to have a systemic bias towards conspiracy theories, towards craziness, towards outrageous stuff. And it radicalizes people. 
So the two things I think are really key to talk about when we talk about that is one is the architecture of the internet and two is economics. So let's maybe talk about architecture first, because that Pope endorses Trump. Um, I remember that I was writing a piece for Neiman Reports, the um, uh, journalism magazine in America, around the time of the, the US election. And I went and tracked down that, that news um, story onto the website that it was allegedly from, right? So the way that Facebook was working at the time is you had these massive groups that were like number one Trump fans or the American Patriot or whatever they were called. And they would suck in a Facebook preview article. Uh, I think maybe instant articles had died a bit off by that point. Mm-hmm. Um but they gave you Pope endorses Trump and they gave you a, a short bit of, um, the, you know, a photo at the top and then a kind of short clip through of what the article would be then. If you then clicked through to that, you saw what was very obviously a Potemkin village of a site, right? It just was a shell yeah. and it barely even existed. And I remember reading at the time one of the things that I thought was really profound about the way that we've built the internet that encourages some of this stuff is we've lost all of the signals you used to have that something was crap, right? That's right. Um, you know, there's a difference in the verbal grammar of the visual grammar of the New York Times or the BBC website versus a supermarket tabloid that's all screaming stuff or the National Enquirer, which has got, you know, a story that's vaguely plausible next to one about the you know, batty kid has eaten his parents or whatever. And you just go, OK, well, that's obviously all entertainment in the nice possible sense. But Facebook flattened all of that out and because it wanted to keep you on Facebook. That's it right. kept you in this clean blue and white design. So everything looked equally equally credible, I guess. Yep. How do you get convinced Facebook to not do that? Well, I think, first of all, what we have to talk about, um, which you're right on target, is how do you know something is true? As a human being, there are certain shortcuts that we use to determine something is true. If I say, well, this Harvard study shows that blah, blah, blah. You don't even really question after that because I already used the phrase Harvard. Mm. You must be right if it's Harvard. Um, it's not wrong for us to do this. These are our cognitive biases. These are the things that behavioral economists and other people have found out for a long time. In the world of magic and persuasion and marketing, you know these shortcuts. There's a set of shortcuts. If other people believe this is true, it's probably true. If other people are talking about it, it's probably important. If a big name-branded thing like uh, 10 Downing Street or uh, Harvard or Stanford say something, it probably is important or it's probably truthful. But these are shortcuts that can be manipulated. Um, you know, you mentioned the idea of false equivalence or, you know, mixing false stories with true stories. Russia Today, as a news organization, um, you know, will publish many totally fair, totally reasonable, regular, I mean, excellent journalism, excellent reporting. And that's great. There's also a bunch of propaganda sort of spewed in, you know, on the side. And so long as most of what is published seems okay, people say this must be a really legitimate news outlet. And so when you're playing with people's sense of what's true, so long as you say nine true things and then one false thing, people don't know to question the false thing. I think that's really important because we really are very, we find it very hard to, you know, certain people in our culture, we we think if you are very eloquent, for example, then that means that you are extremely knowledgeable. And unfortunately, one of the terrible things, one of the great things for me as a journalist is that you can be quite eloquent, but not actually really know a lot about anything. Mm -hmm. And there are people, you know, there are guys who have spent their whole lives in a kind of bunker doing physics who know a shed load about stuff. And they're poor communicators. Right, articulate it, and they wouldn't be able to. And certainly I see that with, um, you know, some of these really big podcast and YouTube stars. They are great talkers, but it does not mean that they know the tiniest thing about, uh, about what they're talking about. But... What you're talking about really for me then is a difficult thing, which is about the reinstatement of gatekeepers, right? The fact that editors at the New York Times saw it, have always seen it as their job to keep untrue things out of the newspaper. 
Facebook does not see it as its job to keep untrue things off Facebook. Yeah. And 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 it has always resisted the idea of being a publisher rather than a platform, although Mark Zuckerberg has kind of crept towards that recently. How, you know, ultimately my question though is can anyone take responsibility for something as awesomely large as Facebook or Google? Well, I think the first step we have to say, okay, right now, or at least until a year ago, uh, they weren't taking any responsibility, Mm -hmm. right? They're just saying, we're building a neutral tool. Mm -hmm. This is just human nature. People are going to use it however they want to. We can't control how people use it. If they use it to post live videos of themselves committing suicide on Facebook Live or something like that, that's not our responsibility. That's just human nature. And what this conversation misses is the way that these products are deliberately designed to persuade you to use it in particular ways. Uh, So my background before I was a design assistant at Google, uh, I studied at a lab called the Persuasive Technology Lab at Stanford. There you go, Stanford. Must be credible. You must be smart. Maybe, you know, right? Just kidding. Um, But it was the Stanford Persuasive Technology Lab. And um, we applied everything we knew about persuasion and psychology and sociology to technology products. Could you have technology um, steer or shape the behaviors, attitudes, habits, and beliefs of people? You know, first thing could be like, could technology help us floss? Could it help us go to the gym? Could it help us do the things we want to do? But of course, that same technology, in fact, I'll tell you a story. In that class, we had, in the final class, we did a segment on the future of persuasive technology. And one group came up with the idea of what if in the future you have a profile per person of what their specific persuasive vulnerabilities are. This person you're talking to is really vulnerable to their friend Susie. If their friend Susie says something's true, then they really yeah. think it's true. They're particularly vulnerable to shortcuts and specifically um, of authorities. Like Harvard is a really good keyword for them. If you say Harvard, they'll really believe it. Each of us think that we're free and we're not influenced by things. But the thing you learn from magic and what I learned at the Stanford Persuasive Technology Lab is that there are things that work on all human minds, they're, they're, they're lower level. Like, for example, we, you know, with, with fake news, like you said, you don't even have to click on that um, Pope endorses Donald Trump article. If I just get that repeated in your newsfeed over and over and over again, you don't even click on it and read the article. Repetition creates um, associative effects in your brain. That's why Goebbels thought, you know, you should just repeat false messages over and over mm. and over again. It makes it true. If I repeat Saddam Hussein 9-11, Saddam Hussein 9-11, Saddam Hussein 9-11, it creates an association. And so it's not about publishing fake news. It's about we have to understand first our minds are universally vulnerable to certain things. And right now that vulnerability is being exploited by technology and systematically tilting the entire ant colony towards these sensationalizing, radicalizing, conspiracy-driving things, which has real-world consequences. I mean people elect populists or don't give their kids vaccinations because they read and they believe these conspiracy theories. And once you have a lot of people believing the conspiracy theory, it just becomes true. It becomes a new social norm because there's a shortcut. If it wasn't true, why are so many people believing it? I think that's one of the things that I find most worrying about social media is this idea that it has allowed you to see what everyone else is doing, this kind of panopticon, I guess. of And, and inevitably, a small percentage of those people will be doing bad things, right? And, and it means that, you know, just someone is peeing in the swimming pool all the time. And you are always kind of aware of that. And I think that is a big pressure on people that kind of shifts them. And and, and if you see everyone else, you know, shouting at people or, or sending abusive tweets or whatever it is, then it becomes much easier to 
you know, that um, Malcolm Gladwell wrote about that theory about school shootings. That was a slow moving riot. And every yep. time there's a, slow, a, a school shooting, the next person who's slightly more, you know, so you start off with your kind of stone cold psychopaths and it moves outwards from there. And I think That's social right. media has a very similar effect on people. Probably the first people who sent abuse were, you know, people who were had significant social problems. And then it becomes a thing that, you know, someone who's otherwise completely normal does at 10 p.m. because they're kind of angry about something. And maybe, you know, that's the one that gets picked up by the police and then, you know, they end up ruining their lives over it. It's very difficult to deal with those kind of signals that you get from the rest of the animals, right? Right. I mean, and there's um, there's something called the emotional contagion effect where, you know, certain emotions are contagious. Um, Facebook's original... Uh, study on happiness uh, was that if they tweak people's news feeds to show you a bunch of happy things, that actually makes other people post happy things. If people post a bunch of sad, depressing things, it makes other people uh, post more sort of sadder things. And people got upset at them because, oh my God, they're manipulating everybody's emotions. But what they were really doing was revealing that effect is true whether they put their hand on the steering wheel to drive it deliberately or not. Meaning that if everyone else looks like they're yelling and bullying, then you're going to feel like, yeah, I got to yell and bully too. What I thought was interesting about that study is that Facebook seemed very unprepared for people going, uh, we're not actually cool with you, guys, with you guys manipulating our emotions. That seems kind of creepy and weird. And it was one of the first canaries in the coal mine, I think, of people totally. going, Facebook isn't this lovely, happy, joyful place that connects me with my old school friends. Actually, we kind of think Facebook's a little bit creepy. And they they really didn't feel ready for that in a way that I feel that Google also weren't ready when they debuted their new personal assistant, that can, you know, the uh, AI that can make phone calls. And people said, well, it does sound incredibly like a human. Don't you think it should identify itself as an AI? And there's this consistent story, I feel, of these big companies that are so blue sky thinking in a lot of ways, not being ready for how people will interpret their often quite well-meaning but objectively kind of weird and creepy things that they are able now to do to us, right? Yeah. Well, I think one aspect here is, isn't it creepy that they can do that? But if that's creepy, that's just the state 24-7 of people's experience online because that effect, again, of being primed by someone else's emotion affects my emotions. That's just true whether Facebook deliberately wants that to happen or not. And they are tuning the newsfeed every single day to drive it to be more and more engaging. And YouTube is doing the same thing and Instagram is doing the same thing. So we have to ask the question, when they're tuning these things and they're changing the dial settings, do they have society's best interest in mind? And they don't. They're only asking one question which is what will keep you here on the screen the longest? And increasingly, the resources that they gain, these are billions of dollar corporations, where do those resources get reinvested? So you spend all those minutes on YouTube. Um, They make a bunch of ad dollars with that money. Where does that money go? It goes back into computing power, supercomputers infrastructure, and back into engineers so that when you're on YouTube, they have even stronger computers and even stronger algorithms pointed at your brain trying to figure out what can I perfectly show you that you're not going to see is coming, that's going to keep you here longer. And that's why, you know, when your friend sends you that YouTube video, you open it up and you think, before you do, I know those other times I get sucked into YouTube and stay for two hours, but this time, no, 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 this time is really going to be different. And then, of course, you wake up from a trance two hours later and say, what the hell just happened? Why did I watch two hours of Dr. Pimple Popper? Right. For for you, for, for me, for maybe example. it's like, you know, <laughs> whatever Steve Jobs video, Jordan Peterson, God knows what else. Um, it's because the algorithms know us better than we know ourselves. And this is a humbling and uncomfortable fact. We actually are living in a world where the computers do know not your values or what's important to you better than you know yourself, but it knows what works on you better than you know yourself. And the illusion that we're not 
influenced by things. Is, is, is the hubris that lets manipulation in, of elections and Brexit and politicians, all this kind of stuff, the Russian manipulation of the 2016 election uh, in the U.S. Uh, continue because we operate with a view that everything that happens behind our eyeballs and our skull is protected inside of a secure enclave called a brain or our mind. And that everything that goes on there is totally independent of influence. And this conversation is not just, hey, there's this kind of cute distraction stuff that's happening to us or there's these tricks they're playing on our brains. It's actually restructuring the fabric of society. And a good example of this, um, in the case of teenagers and, and kids and mental health, um, because this is a popular topic for parents, is I can manipulate the identity and self-worth of a teenager. Uh, my friends in college started Instagram. They actually went to the same lab as I did, the Stanford Persuasive Technology Lab. And in that lab, we knew that photos are really persuasive, more persuasive than text. Um, so why not make things with photos? And they also said, hey, what if we show people the number of likes they get per photo? Because that will keep them coming back because then they'll wonder how many likes do I get on those other photos? And that works better at getting people's attention. But then you keep going in this race to the bottom of the brainstem to say, what's another way I can get you to come back? And Snapchat recently added beautification filters. So now it's not enough that you post a photo of yourself, like a selfie. Now we're going to offer you filters to tap into your vanity, your, your sense of social approval, give you an unrealistic beauty, beautiful photo. So it thins out your, your face. It makes your lips bigger. It makes your eyes bigger. Uh, makes your skin whiter. It's very popular with teenage girls. And what that does is it creates this unrealistic standard of beauty that you're getting validated every 10, 15 mm. minutes with these likes dosed with at a you know, totally um, unnatural level of social validation at an unheard of schedule for hundreds of millions of teenagers. And um, there's a recent study of plastic surgeons saying that they've, they've never seen more requests for plastic surgery to look like their Snapchat uh, filter. So there's a, now 55%, I think, of plastic surgeons have reported in this one study, uh, getting requests from teenagers who want to look like their Snapchat beautified version of themselves. So we're generating body dysmorphias. There's teen suicides are up. You're seeing constant highlight reels of your friends' lives. So this race for attention is not innocuous. It's not just causing harm in the moment. It's actually changing the world that we live in. Material world changes. I think that's one of the ones that I find most interesting because it's fairly easy to make the case that Twitter is a kind of cesspit of people shouting. And, you know, I, being on the time zone we are, we get a kind of blatant blissful grace period in the morning before Donald Trump wakes up. Um, and then we get like, oh, well, what's he got to say about stuff this afternoon? So everyone's going to have to pay attention to this guy kind of shouting. Um, but but I think the way that Instagram can make you feel very bad about yourself is harder. I'm not sure that's one. When I talk to my friends about social networks, that's the one where they kind of go, oh, but it's really, everything's just lovely over on Instagram. But that's its own kind of problem. And I left for a bit after discovering that photos of myself got far more likes than anything else. And I mm -hmm. thought, this is actually, what it's doing is warping me towards wanting to post more photos of myself. Yeah. And why am I, like, what's, why am I doing that? Like, they're really, my face does not change overtly, but like from day to day. But that is the incentive because it's, you, you, are, you know exactly what it is that's popular. And ditto on Twitter, if I post something that's very strongly partisan, you know, I work for a left-leaning publication, I post something, you know, most of my followers are left-leaning. That's the thing that gets, you know, yeah. whereas actually I think Theresa May has a point. No, no, no yeah. one wants to hear that. Right. And I think you, you become more aware of how it's warping you. But as you say, this is the second half of the question is about the economics of it, right? Yeah. If you have these, and we're really, we've talked mostly about, you know, the big four or five tech companies here, you know, Google, 
Apple to some extent. I think the iPhone now also has the same thing you were talking about with Snapchat. The portrait mode does the same thing about kind of all like photoshopping you in real time um, and Facebook and, and then Amazon to a, to a lesser extent when we're talking about these kind of things. Um, but, you know, this is a kind of handful of companies that uh, are built around, uh, you know, needing, you know, the economics of attention. Um, h- how is that ever going to change, you know, without their business models changing? Well, I think we do have to have a conversation about business models. The first thing about the race for attention is to notice it's never going away. There is only so much attention out there, and the world is not going to stop competing for attention because our friends need it. We need it for ourselves. Uh, We need it to pursue our goals. We need it to do our work. We need it. News organizations need us to spend our time with them. Politicians need our attention. So there's always going to be a competition for attention. But up until now, no one ever treated it like a finite resource. Um, so much like I think, you know, it took us 10 years after we went to space for us to see a photo of the Earth. We were so excited to just get out into space and point the telescopes outwards. It took us 10 years to point the telescope back to see the finite planet that we live on. And that moment um, was paired with the birth of the environmental movement and the birth of, in the United States, the Environmental Protection Agency. Because it was only when you could see that there was something finite that there was something to protect. So a lot of what we're doing in the world is um, saying that we need to live, in a, to live in a humane technology world. We have to see that attention is a finite and sacred resource. And I don't just mean so you can spend your time where you want to, but that it actually alters the fabric of society. The more time that kids are spending or their attention is steered towards a, a distorted version of their self-worth, that crowds out other uses of attention. That becomes the norm. And then when it comes to norm, that becomes the what kids talk about is just what we look like. And we think of who I am becomes how I look. So uh, we have to have a different conversation around instead of extracting human attention and drilling it out of the minds and heads of children and human beings so we can suck it up, say, how do we conserve it? How do we coordinate safely around the regenerative capacity of human attention? Just like a you know a forest has a capacity to regenerate based on how fast you're, you're taking stuff down, you don't want to take attention out of a system as much as people need it to regain. And, and we live in a world right now where, because there's only so much, even the CEO of Netflix said our biggest competitor is sleep. And <laughs> oh my you know, God, so you, bleak. <laughs> they're drilling into the sacred region of your attention space, which is your sleep space, right? So just like I think with you know protecting parks, we say there's a national park here, and the government says we protect that park because we know that we'll lose it forever if we don't protect it. We have to say, what are the parts of not just our own lives, but of the social fabric that we want to not be polluted? Well, let's talk about um, practical steps, but we'll take a short break first of all. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And we're back. I'm with Tristan Harris, Executive Director of the Centre for Humane Technology. Um, so let's talk about what you personally do, because one of the things I think is really fascinating when I talk to people who have worked in Silicon Valley is quite often they end up being incredibly tech sceptical themselves and very much more, you know, they have two-factor authentication on all their accounts. You know, they're much more aware of all the things that other people can be quite blase about. So tell me about your digital hygiene regime that you personally pursue. Um, you know, for me... I'm as distracted and as manipulated by all this stuff as anybody else. And I admit that openly because to me, that's the important part of this conversation is it starts by looking at ourselves and knowing ourselves better. Um, that, you know, all of us will experience what, what I call false urgency when you get a text message like, oh my God, I got to get really back to this person right now. And that's, that's a bias, kind of a, an exploit, a, a magic trick on your mind that you experience urgency where there is no urgency. It's just because of the heightened emotional state from it buzzed your pocket, it buzzed twice. Who could it be? Play the slot machine and see in that heightened state, you feel this urgency to get back. So from where I'm sitting, I work on this problem so much because I notice how vulnerable I am to each of one of these things. And I think it's important that when we start there, it's not about changing how we relate to the technology. It's about changing the way the technology works. Some small steps that people can do, obviously, are turning off notifications, setting your phone to grayscale. But the important thing is that doesn't prevent these social harms from showing up in the social fabric, meaning that doesn't prevent infinite social comparisons, seeing the highlight reels of other kids' lives for, for kids. Or if you're a parent, seeing the highlight reels of other parents' kids succeeding because it's only showing the highlight reels of their lives. It's distorting the way that we see the world. And limiting our screen time doesn't solve that problem. We have to change the content of those experiences. Okay. But nonetheless, I want to say, how many hours a day do you spend on your phone? Way too much. Because I installed Moment, you know, that app that uh, tells you. And I was like, haha, I wonder how much it can possibly be. And then the first day it came back and it was like, you've spent six hours today on your phone. And I was like, I've done, I've done what now? I mean, like, I'm working a whole job just checking my phone and yeah. checking social media and answering, you know, little bits of emails while I'm on the train and stuff like that. And I agree with you that you we have to have that conversation about the structures, but I think that there's a consciousness raising to be done at the start, which is where the things like so grayscale, for example, there's a if you have an iPhone, you can go into what I think it's somewhere buried in settings. You go to uh, settings, general accessibility, and then scroll all the way to the bottom to accessibility shortcut, where if you triple click, you can turn on the color settings. But like you said. Um, you know, what is that about? Why would you even set up grayscale? It starts by knowing something about yourself, which is that color, when you look at your screen, you see these colorful rewards. Why, why are notifications red, for example? Red is a trigger color that is very deep evolutionarily inside of your system. If I show red to you, it activates a heightened sense in you, right? So that's why it's red. It's not because they thought what's best for society. They said, this is what works. Mm. And um, so knowing that color is so seductive and generates these like little tiny micro dopamine rewards as you just look at your phone, even just looking at your phone at the screen, the home screen does this. If you set your phone to grayscale, you're sort of subtracting the excitatory component of your phone screen. And that reduces the addictiveness by, you know, 10% or something like that. Um, that needs to be measured. But that's the general experience people have is it helps a little bit. That's not the answer, though. This starts with understanding, given that we're so manipulated, once people understand that they're manipulated by technology and their minds really are being influenced, then what they want to demand isn't just that they can set their footings, settings for themselves. Let's have the companies take responsibility for changing it. And that's exactly what just happened, in fact, yesterday when Apple released the new iOS uh, 12 
It has a little feature called screen time that's better than moment. It lets people see how much time they spend in all of their apps. This is not the thing that's concerning to us, by the way, is we lose some time here or there. That's a very minor harm. And, um, but we do, you know, think take some credit for basically raising the conversation that, get, that got both this year Apple, Google, and Facebook to adopt versions of time well spent, a concept that we did um, help uh, advocate for, uh, into the designs of phones. And the point was that as people grew more and more skeptical that they were being manipulated by technology, they wanted the companies to do more. And so that's why I'm talking to you right now is we go on the road and talk about this, this, this problem and show awareness for it that people really do feel manipulated, whether it's for elections or team mental health. And it makes the companies feel responsible for changing what they're doing. I think that's the point that it's interesting that we've got to now, thanks to initiatives like yours, because there is now a, a genuine kind of fear that, you know, I mean, we've had these huge tech beer moths before that have kind of just, you know, well, like who is on MySpace these days, right? It, you know, for all that Facebook is incredibly dominant, it, it, because it's the it's the only social network in that space because of network effects, right? Because there can only be one. But equally, well, if all your friends start leaving Facebook, then a tipping point could come quite quickly where it's not worth you being on it as well. So I think that there, there has definitely in the last year been a change in terms of a fear that actually if people begin to feel and I certainly feel this, like my phone used to be a source of just straightforward joy and entertainment to me. And now it's just a kind of source of slight guilt and unease to me. Like, yeah. why am I looking at it again? Why can't I get on? Why am I finding it so difficult to read this book? And fair enough, I probably had find it difficult to read books for other, like with procrastinating something else. But I, d- I do think, I mean, how, how far do you think that goes? How worried do you think these big tech companies really are about movements like yours? Well, I think um, what, what we found, people often say, and this is back to your question about the economics, if billions and billions and billions of dollars of market value are locked up in a business model where the stock price is directly tied to how many minutes a day you're spending on these services, and there's a game theoretic competition for if you don't get all the attention, someone else is going to swoop in and take it. So I got to keep it up and be really strong in this arms race to capture human attention. So what in the world would ever cause companies to go against their own interests? And the reason that we talk about this um, this problem and, and this the way that we're hijacked by technology, and that it does lead to these these massive social harms from mental health, loneliness, addiction, uh, alienation to manipulation of elections and populism and conspiracy theories, is that engineers in Silicon Valley don't want to believe that they're contributing these harms to society. The people that I know in Silicon Valley, yes, many of them are just excited about the code and the the money and things like that. But they also go there because they want to have a big impact on the world. They go there versus someone else because you can influence millions and millions of people. You can't do that if you're you know, doing those things in the world. And if they can see that they are causing these harms by having YouTube just show them, you know, show users the most, you know, engaging video, um, they don't want to do that. And we found the biggest force of accountability and the reason why these tech companies are changing their behavior right now is because their friends are talking to them about, hey, why are you guys, you know, leading to all these these problems? Why are you creating all these problems? And they they don't want to participate in that. And that creates pressure from the top of the organization to say, we have to demonstrate that we're changing. We have to demonstrate that even though you would think Apple and Google profit from the maximum amount of time people spend on their phones, they're saying, no, 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 we don't. We're going to allow both these companies, Apple and Google, are shipping features that let you limit the amount of screen time. And that's a direct response to needing to prove that they're not manipulating people's minds. So that's that's our theory of change, is the more people know about this, the employees don't want to work on things that cause harm. That's, um, I hesitate to describe it as a right-wing proposition because it's not quite, but it is a kind of, 
it's assuming that there is a philanthropic desire to help the world will at some point overcome raw economics. Do you think there's also a role for governments in all of this? Yeah, you might say that seems like an awfully complicated way. Like, shouldn't we have the natural government structures that would correct for problems when they emerge in the social fabric, right? Right. Well, because I think, you know, yeah. Why doesn't the government regulate it? Yeah. And I would think about some of the things that, for example, that Facebook is doing with fake news as being a really good pollution isn't exactly, you know, it's like uh, someone, I think Emily Bell from the Tau Center once said, you know, Facebook is essentially a utility company, right? And actually, if they're not, you know, if their pipes are leaky or something's getting into the, the water supply, that we should hold them responsible in the same way that we would hold a water company responsible. Yeah. But governments seem mixed. Well, for, for example, my contention would be I know you, you talk to a lot more politicians about this than I do, probably, that politicians have been very slow to understand this. I think when we saw Mark Zuckerberg in front of the Senate, there were people kind of going, like, my seven year old has uh, sent me here with a question, Mr. Zuckerberg, about the series of tubes that make up the internet. I was really unimpressed with the level of, of knowledge that the, poli- the people yeah. who are supposed to be doing oversight of this have. That's that's right. And that's the unfortunate part. And different parts of the government apparatus, we actually helped in the first uh, investigations around Russia back in September 2017, the first time the platforms were brought in. Before that, the policymakers didn't have any idea what was going on. And we actually, there's been many people who have been helping to educate policymakers, uh, especially in the U.S. Um, here in the U.K., you know, we gave testimony to the U.K.'s, uh, the Parliament's DCMS committee. Um, for Damien Collins and and, and the rest. And that's led to some policy recommendations that have just been published recently. Um, I think the challenge is that these issues are very nuanced. So people want a quick solution. Let's just ban social media for kids or let's just, you know, uh, do content, you know, just take down all the hate speech. And these are complicated issues. I mean, for example, take something like cyberbullying. Why is cyberbullying happening? Well, cyberbullying is really engaging content, and Facebook and Twitter make it really easy to bully someone from afar. Um, Should the solution be that we have the tech companies take down the hateful content just to filter it, just to point AI at it and say, we're going to pattern detect all this bullying stuff, and we're just going to take it down? Um, We think it can be handled a different way, um, which is that humane technology starts by understanding how does human nature really work? And in a social situation, what stops people from bullying each other on the streets in London, in a bad part of London? It's like there's a social norm that if a lot of people are watching and can have that shunning effect when someone's bullying someone else and we can all shun them for bullying, they stop bullying. Right now, that shunning effect that's built into our evolutionary system isn't given space to operate because of the anonymity that's Mm -hmm. created in these spaces. There's no eye contact. There's no way to see that a lot of people are shunning you or looking at you with a furrowed brow, that's an instantaneous response that our evolutionary uh, upbringing you know, gives us for free. We have lots of evolutionary leverage, but technology just erases all of this work that our evolutionary instincts have given us to create those kinds of natural equilibria in, in social situations. So that solution, which I believe is the right one for something like cyberbullying, that these companies and Instagram should bake in those kinds of social instincts into those environments is not going to be something that a policymaker knows how to regulate. Mm. And so policymakers often don't know what the design decisions are. But what they can do is say, we need more transparency, meaning we don't know how often YouTube is recommending conspiracy theories to people in languages that the engineer don't even speak. You know, if you thought 9-11 conspiracies are bad in English and in the West, by the way, you have no idea how bad or crazy it is in 9-11 conspiracy theories in Arabic or mm. Burmese or Sri Lankan. I mean, it's crazy, right? Um And there's no transparency. So one thing that policymakers can do is create more um, regulation around transparency. That creates the ability for researchers to have more oversight. Um, But 
you know, we need also there's more complex policy proposals, but this is some of the. I think transparency states. is a really interesting one. I remember because I my main job is as a political journalist, talking um, through both through the U.S. election and our uh, Brexit referendum about you know how simple it would have been simply just to have Facebook to give you a directory of all its ads and all the ad targeting, so that yeah. you could see who was buying what ads for how much money and how they were being targeted. Because a lot of the stuff that's come out about the way that Facebook did political targeting. Actually, if there had been, if journalists had had access to that, I think it would have been, you know, some of the things like the Hillary Clinton says that black men are super predators, right? Which was uh, bought yep. by Republicans and targeted at voters who had a constellation of likes that overlapped with being African American. Yep. So it was indirectly racially targeted. Um, and and actually, if that had kind of come out, then I think people, you know, it, even if somebody had alerted Facebook to that at the time that that was being bought, they probably would have looked at it and thought this is not something that we actually violates our terms and conditions. But but because no one knew about it, yeah, there was no pressure. Well, they were incentivized not to look, right? Yes. And so let's just look at the math of it. Facebook has something like five million advertisers cycling through their system, yeah, right. And each of them are running a few different campaigns, possibly thousands of campaigns, and then those are individually targeted towards different groups of people. So there's like, multiply all that together, you get exponential complexity. How do you know what 2.2 billion human animals jacked into Facebook, which is both, by the way, more than the number of followers of Christianity are influenced by Facebook every single day. Actually, 1.45 is the daily number and then 1.9, sorry, 2.2 billion is the uh, monthly number of users, active users. Um, but that's, that's such an enormous number of people, again, influenced by 5 million advertisers let me give you the following proposition. Let's say I'm Russia and I want to manipulate your population. What do I do? I want to find your conspiracy theorists. So I'm going to go in. I'm going to target an ad campaign to warrior moms. Warrior moms are the mothers who are anti-vaccine conspiracy theorists. They actually self-identify as warrior mothers. Then I pump that list of uh, users back into something called lookalike models. Lookalike models is a tool for advertisers to discover, I have this many users who like Nike shoes. Mm. Give me... 10,000 users who look just like them because I want to expand the number of people who like shoes. I want to find that new audience. But now I can take conspiracy theorists and say, I'm going to order up thousands of new conspiracy theorists so I can run these new ad campaigns to target disinformation at them. So if it turned out that, say, people who were into conspiracy theories also disproportionately liked X TV program or, you know, had, uh, you know, from X location, for, which it can be targeted to quite a granular level, right, in terms of... Incredibly granular. Like, or don't have a high school degree. You could target people like... Like that, all of that, and it's it's not even just the ads. I think people often think that Brexit and and the U.S. Russia you know problem were had to do with the advertising. So far as I understand it, the the Russians especially used ads to try and test messages towards certain um, demographics and ethnic groups, and then from there they would then jump into the Facebook groups to manipulate them there. Now, why would you manipulate in Facebook groups? So let me give you an example uh, of how groups are manipulated. Let's say you're a new mother. And this is very common. New mothers join Facebook and they want to find a useful place to get support. So they join one of these new mom groups. Sounds like a great idea. You can trade tips, advice, trade baby clothes when your clothes grow out of the clothes, when your babies mm. grow out of the clothes of that age. Super useful. But then Facebook has this goal. They tell one of their product managers, I want to maximize the number of groups that, that people join because that's going to bring the world closer together, according to our mission statement. Mm -hmm. So what is a good group to recommend to new moms that other moms tend to have joined that's really engaging for them. Anti-vaccine mothers is one of the top recommendations. So new moms, they get recommended the anti-vaccine group. And then once you join that group, what are highly engaging Facebook groups for that group that tend to like these other groups? 
And you end up with conspiracy theories that are chemtrails, Pizzagate, uh, UFO conspiracies, all this stuff, because you're daisy chaining from one crazy system to another. And Facebook is using machines to calculate what's the most engaging thing to show you, which is different than what we want in our society or what people actually want reflectively. It's serving up like a magician at the top of the menu some of the worst parts of our society, and it's highly gameable. And what you end up with that is, uh, I know in Europe, measles rates have, have jumped. Uh, I presume the same is true in the US. And you end up with a situation which herd immunity no longer works and people, for example, are exactly. receiving cancer treatment and can't be immunized against something. They no longer rely on the protection of everybody else. Exactly, and that's why people need to understand this is not a conversation about the cute tricks that technology companies play in your brains. This is how technology is an invisible force driving the whole world in a certain direction. It's, you know, people think of what's driving the world right now and think of global finance, think of oil. Oil is driving the world. Um, but when you see populism emerging around the world and you see um, us electing, you know, people believing in more conspiracy theories and you see, um, you know, a rise in suicide rates among mental health of teenagers and loneliness and isolation, and alienation, um, you know, Technology is not responsible for all those things, but it is driving the world in that direction because the race for attention is not going away. And as it gets more and more competitive, it has to show you the most extreme, paranoid, conspiracy, radicalizing stuff. And you wake up 10 years later and you end up, you know, it's like, why do we worry about Al-Qaeda? It's like, you know, you, you start and you have 10 years of people being baked in that belief system. And then suddenly you have a bunch of terrorists later, right? If people are baking in conspiracy theory land, you're not going to be happy with that society that comes out the other end. Well, with Pizzagate being an obvious example, I, I was one of those ones where I struggled to remember because it was so insane. But there was a theory that Hillary Clinton supporters were running a paedophile ring out of the basement of a pizza restaurant. I'm, as I'm saying it, I'm aware that sounds mad. But someone walked in with a gun to that to that restaurant, right? Which, needless right. to say, was not running a paedophile ring out of the basement. I think we should make that very clear. But you know, there was another example that BuzzFeed reported on about... Uh, a young man who'd been involved with some of these uh, kind of alt-right style websites who who murdered his father shouting about Pizzagate because his father was a Democrat supporter and he kind of come to believe that all Democrats must be involved in this massive conspiracy. Right. Like and there are real world effects of all of this stuff. Exactly. And that's the most important thing because let's say you take from this conversation that you and I are having right now, you listen to this and you say, you know what, I'm going to unplug, I'm not going to use this stuff, I'm going to turn off notifications, do that grayscale thing like that guy on pod on the podcast said. It doesn't change the fact that everyone else is jacked into technology, which is why this is much more like a political movement. It's about exerting pressure on these companies to take responsibility. Just like, you know, coal is very cheap to power our economy and it powered us to this period of ex economic prosperity. And that was great. But suddenly on the balance sheet of society, we got air pollution and CO2 and climate change. And so the answer wasn't we don't need energy. The answer is we need clean burning energy. And we can thank coal for providing us to the early period of economic prosperity. But much like that, I think we have to look at advertising as a business model that's dirty burning, you know, financial capital for technology companies. Because it got us to a period of incredible growth, economic prosperity, building all these systems, amazing. And now we need to get off of this thing that's externalizing harm to the fabric of society, whether that harm is to our cognition because we, we're reading less and we're, we're um, in terms of books and long-form attention is, is dwindling, um, or those externalities are to mental health and isolation and loneliness and depression, which are on the rise because of the social media comparison effects, or those, those externalities are to beliefs and conspiracy theories. Um, you know, these are real serious externalities that when you add them up in a landscape where we have increasingly less time to solve global challenges like climate change and inequality, 
technology is distracting us from the challenges that we really have, where we need to have a shared fabric of truth. We need to know like what we can do and feel empowered around these big global challenges. Right now, technology is not doing that. Why don't you just finish up by just telling us what you're specifically doing at the Center for Humane Technology? Because I don't mean to be rude, but these are companies with billion-dollar capitalization. You know, Apple has got, hasn't it, got more reserve? You know, it's got more money. It's got more cash reserves than the Federal Reserve, right? These, yeah. as, like you say, there are more people on YouTube than followers of Islam, more people on Facebook than followers of Christianity. Um, how many of, of you guys are there? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, there's about seven of us. Mm-hmm. And um, I'll give you a metaphor, though. Um, that actually is right here from um, the British Empire. So one of my favorite books is called Bury the Chains, and it's actually about the British abolitionist movement of slavery. Mm. At the time of the British abolitionist movement, I think it was something like 75% of the world economy was was um, in some way touched by slavery. It was powered by slavery. Yeah, And it's not like after this all went down, it was obvious that slavery was so wrong. I mean, it should have been obvious before, but the whole economy was built on it this repugnant, awful thing. And how in the world, when 75% of your entire global economy is based on something repugnant, do you transition off of it? How did that happen? And the book documents how right here in London, in a printing press, a bunch of people pioneered some of the early social justice techniques, pamphlets, organizing uh, meetups, getting the Quakers in the US, and just building a network of political support, uh, representations, paintings of, of of the character of the slave ships and how tightly packed they were. And people had just never seen the situation clearly. They'd never seen a photo of the situation. And I think that what we're doing is, is I'm not trying to equate the problem with slavery in any way. I just want to show the economic similarity mm. that um, our entire economy did in the technology space is propped up by systems that are creating massive existential problems um, and create huge risk. And we can't immediately just get off of it. When the British Empire decided to get off slavery, they sacrificed 2%, 2% of their GDP every year for 60 years. And imagine you're halfway through that. You're in year number 30, right? Um, You know that you're still uh, engaging in the practice of slavery. And you know that you're still making the right call. You're still going towards the right end goal. So there's going to be this period called the awkward years where you're, 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 you're moving towards the right direction, but you're not there yet. And the way you get there is by showing everybody the same worldview, which is that this is bad, no one wants this future. It's not right, and we can do something better. And it might take time to get there, but what we've found is that we get the technology companies to see this, see this clearly, and the technology employees uh, want to see this change too. Finally, then, if we're going to, if everyone's feeling fired up by um, the, the idea that you know a couple of people, a small group of people, can change the world, what should they do next? Well, um, uh, you know, get involved. I think, honestly, just speaking about this topic in these terms, the technology is manipulating and exploiting human nature as a way of profiting, and that's causing real problems from mental health to conspiracy theories and populism around the world. Um, The more people talk about that, and the more people talk about it, especially to their friends in the tech industry and in media and in government, and the more that's the common worldview, the more companies have to demonstrate that's not what we're doing, and here's how we're taking steps to do something different. Um, that's what's caused the change now that's gotten Apple and Google and Facebook to make changes against their business model, and that's what we think will continue to work. So we hope everybody does that, and if you want to know more, you can also look up Humane Technology. Thank you very much, Tristan Harris. Thank you so much for having me.